You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. super excited and honored to have uh, two very, very sharp thinkers with us tonight who study the consequences of geopolitics, biopolitics, and cybernetics, and where they intersect, and what happens when militarism produces a way of living that really comes at the expense of the biosphere and all of us. Uh, So the book that we're focusing on tonight is called Savage Ecology. War and Geopolitics at the End of the World. It's produced by Duke University Press. Uh, Jerris Grove is the author. He's here with us tonight. He's director of the University of Hawaii's Research Center for Futures Studies and an associate professor of international relations. His research focuses on the relationship between disruptive technology and global warfare. He's also a specialist at studying apocalyptic scenarios. Joining him will be David Goldberg. He's a writer, teacher, cultural critic, media developer, and native San Franciscan. His work focuses on on where racism and digital technology intersect and the sentient evil that may result uh, from the unholy union of these things. So, gentlemen, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Try to balance the mic. Whoa, that's intense. Uh, first, I want to say thank you to Peter uh, for putting all this together with his team, uh, for David for making the time, and to James Sardarian for introducing me to Peter. Um, if it were not for the crazy, weird things that happen when you meet people in Sydney, Australia, so that you can fly from Honolulu to San Francisco, so that you can talk about a book about destroying the world, uh, you know, like that's how this happens. So. Um, so I, I, I want to start, uh, I want to say a few things about tonight, which is, this is a, you know, Peter was like, hey, why don't you do it on September 11th? And I was like, uh, okay, uh, well, that's weird. Um, but it, it also is kind of fitting. You know, tonight is a crowded graveyard, uh, and there's, there's no other way to think about it. Uh, and I want to think through what that date means and, and kind of then maybe I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the book and then I'll just read you a, the only happy part of the book, which is kind of at the end. Um, so September 11th, 1973, Salvador Guillermo Allende uh, was murdered uh, as part of a coup between the United States uh, and Chile. Um, but something else died that night too. Uh, and it was one of the first utopian visions of the internet. It's called Cybersyn. Uh, Allende had contracted uh, with the cyberneticist Stafford Beer to build an internet that would allow for even rural villages uh, to be in real-time communication so that they could really figure out a way to get over the kinds of resource distribution problems, supply and demand problems, which had supposedly plagued planned economies, to make planned economies just. Uh, It's hard not to think about what it would have meant to flip the switch on a system that would organize economies around questions like need and justice uh, with the kinds of efficiency uh, that were being bragged about by the Chicago gang that would show up not long after that. Uh, Ten years later, uh, a fictional computer, much like Cybersyn, went online in the movie War Games called Whopper, War Operations Plan Response. This was the dystopia that died in Chile. 
this was a computer that could run simulations in real time, that had artificial intelligence, that could think through how to fight and win wars, and the movie War Games almost killed us all. September 11th, 2001, just a few years later. 2,977 people die in New York City, 125 at the Pentagon, uh, and less than two years later uh, begins probably what will be the longest war uh, in U.S. history. Uh, the Brown Body Count Project confirms 244,000 violent deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, those are violent deaths, so those are deaths as a result of war. If we think about the lives lost that would never have lives, that would never give birth to new lives, that would never help other people live, if we think about the ways in which infrastructures made life impossible, the very ecosystems of Iraq and Afghanistan, these places, were deprived of the capacity for a thriving life, most people peg those numbers at closer to a million. Uh, and, you know, in honor of Ferengeti, who would not be here if he had not survived the war, we should think about, too, uh, which sometimes we struggle to do on the left, that there were 4,424 Americans killed in action, 31,952 that were wounded, and this number, which always blows my mind and no one wants to talk about, which is that there are 375,000 American veterans with traumatic brain injury, uh, many of whom find their way into drugs and alcohol until it's debilitating, many of whom beat the people that they love. Uh, and as a result, we also have a number which blows me away, which is that 102,000 veterans have killed themselves since this war started. That's a cost I think we should consider. So the best minds of my generation are not destroyed by madness. They're dead. Uh, and I think about that a lot when I think about September 11th, that it's become America's All Hallows Eve. This is both our Halloween and it's also our new July 4th. And I think we should think about what it means that we've refounded this country, right? The Patriot Act, the ways in which the war on terrorism has become a permanent feature of America, uh, that it is the July 4th. And I want to, before I switch to the book, think about a couple of other foundings. Because I really think that September 11, 2001 is a founding. Right? We built a new country. Uh, it's not the country I want. It's not a country for us. Uh, and it's a country that we will fight uh, if we want to do anything about. But what could have other foundings been? Because that original July 4th wasn't so great either. It was a lot of really cool ideas. It was a lot of experimental ethos that I think I wish people wanted to play with institutions like that today. But we had another one we could have really thought about, June 19th, 1865. We could have Juneteenth as our July 4th, not September 11th or July 4th. That would be interesting. I recently found out that I have an ancestor uh, who was elected to the North Carolina uh, legislature because of radical reconstruction. It's cool. Uh, so he saved the University of North Carolina. They wanted to shut it down, in part because I think they thought it was a, it was a waste of resources. Uh, but of course, radical reconstruction ended too fast. Uh, he was pushed out of office because most of the African Americans who served were. Uh, and the University of Northern Carolina, or North Carolina uh, had the good fortune to offer him a job. They let him be janitor. Um, so I wonder what that would look like. I'll just say that we just lost a, a senator in Hawaii recently. Uh, she's an honorary professor with no degree. Uh, so what would other possible foundings be? January 6, 1941, FDR gives the Four Freedoms speech. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, 
freedom from want, freedom from fear. What would that look like as another vision of America? The last founding, the founding we live in, January 20th, 2017, the inauguration of Donald John Trump. Um, we have begun to see the faintest outlines of what this new founding will be. Uh, I imagine we'll look back on it as being as dramatic and restructuring as September 11th was. Uh, I think it would be wrong to think that it's merely a continuation of that project. I think it's a radical break. Uh, and I think it's the world we live in. We don't know what this new founding is going to be like, but like so many before, it will stand on a mountain of skulls. There'll be skulls of elephants, whales, wolves, bumblebees, giraffes. There'll be a variety of humans, migrants, <laughs> blacks, Appalachians, Iraqis, Yemeni, Kurdish, Syrian, Tareg, Afghanistan, and always women, always all sexes and genders of women. So that's what I'll say about tonight. And now I get to redo the happiest part of the book. And then David's going to say really insightful things that I couldn't have said. <clears throat> so this comes at the end of the book uh, when I look into um, how people are trying to cope with what is, you know, not the best news we've ever received, right? We're, we're living in a world where, and I think for the last 500 years, war has terraformed the planet. Uh, it's changed what trees grow in North America, what people live on every continent. Uh, it's altered and structured how states interact, what kinds of politics are possible. Uh, it's drawn in, quite literally, billions of people uh, such that we live with the system that we live today. The way that I like to put it is this. When people say that they think oil is at the root of everything, I ask them this counterfactual. Can you imagine a world without oil? Yeah, of course, you can. Uh, yeah. Can you imagine a world of war without oil? And unfortunately, the answer to that is also yes. I can imagine a world without oil that also still is overcome by war. And I'll say the proof of that is that one of the largest military facilities in Hawaii is for making ethanol and renewable energy so that the military can move forward. All right, so here's where the book starts. I start talking about some of the people who are trying to think otherwise. In another of the many manifestos cropping up in the tumult of our time, a group of former environmentalists who refuse to continue fighting their governments and corporations have penned what they call the Dark Mountain Manifesto. In it, they propose an uncivilizing of thought and art as an alternative to the anxiety-inducing obligation to save the planet. Unlike the modernist projects that seek their fortune off the rock on other planets, or beyond the confines of the human meat suit, those just down the street who'd like to upload their intelligence, Dark Mountain Project digs deeper into the dark but unpredictable trajectory of planetary change rather than trying to escape it. I'm curious why inventing new forms of life that might live through the current apocalypse with what Kings North calls dignity, a dignity recognizable beyond our limited Western humanist circle, is tantamount to giving up, which is what everybody accuses them of. Instead, I'd like to consider that techniques for living creatively and with a greater sense of wonder for the diversity of life, we might find in those wilder fringes King's North invokes. They have ceremonies and funerals for species we've lost. Uh, they pen poetry for the animals that no longer walk the earth. 
The apocalypse before us is one of a great homogenization. It is the result not of floods, asteroids, belching mountains, and tectonic collisions, but of sadism and fatigue. We are living in the shadow of an annihilating repetition that would, if successful, finish the process of operationalizing the planet in the image of what I call in this book the Eurocene, not the Anthropocene, which is sort of the buzzword for this new epic. The question is whether the repetition of oil drilling, consumerism, primitive accumulation in the cruel territories of the post-colony, strip mining everywhere, and racial profiling at local and global scales has reached terminal velocity, or if there are still nascent possibilities for new, wilder aims. In light of the heaps of burning cell phones, in the light of the heaps of burning cell phones and discarded computers, a common dogmatic methodology of life is showing itself as exhausted. Contemporary warfare and ecological exploitation are first and foremost cruel, but the cruelty is becoming tedious. In the state of exhaustion, many demand to restore the future, and I think this is vital. The Dark Mountain Project's endeavor to invent a wilder humanity is exciting and equally necessary, I think. History has not come to an end, but much of humanity has stalled in vicious consumption, in a vicious consumption of everything. The self-declared civilizational winners have neither a future nor a wild spirit, and we will need both if there is a point to persistence at all. Venerated thinkers from Jesus to John Rawls have done little to prepare us for this creaturely life we confront. To this end, we need a new social science, an uncivilized social science, committed to a feral reason that is endemic to this world rather than the cold consciousness of a supposedly independent human mind or exclusively human social sphere. It's time to think like the earthlings we are. Contra the dream of becoming data or some other silicon life form, the problem is not the technological limitations of space exploration, geoengineering, or even digital existence. It is the belief that one of the, these options can escape this world. Such a desire for escape is at some level a hatred for this world. These various strategies of transcendence will extinction as their success. However, even the dream of a digital or spiritual machine must cope with mortality. The recent discovery of electron-eating bacteria is just one more reminder that there is no jailbreak from this mortal coil. It is decay all the way down. So rather than wish for the end as transcendent images of the future do, the wilder fringes should be in search of minor traditions, incipient practices, novel senses of belonging, and anachronistic forms of life, both futural and deeply old. My senses are repulsed by the con consolidation and homogenization of humanity against the cherry-picking of what forms of non-human animal life are useful. The task at hand is not aided by acceleration or transcendence, but by differentiation. Those who see an eternal future and technological dominance or a digital life without death are like Friedrich Nietzsche's fools, who equate a philosophy of eminence and abundance with a mood of optimism. Instead, we must find our meaning in rougher waters. According to Eduardo Viveros de Castro, to lead a good life, as is said by the Indians, is first necessary to enjoy living on the edge. If Earth's calamitous and creative history teaches us anything, it is that those who survive and thrive are not the fittest or even the survivalists. They are those creative forms of life that intensify their existence, even if that intensity is only fleeting. After all, fitness is about fit, and fit changes without warning. In a creative cosmos, we must speculate and speciate 
often and wildly, lest we find ourselves without reason to live, much less the ability to continue. To put it another way, we should fear fatigue, not oblivion. To what end then? And how do we mobilize a wild creativity with the intensity of just how fragile we are? How could thinking take seriously the crisis of our contemporary condition without adopting the eschatological tone of Christian apocalypse? How do we go wild without the cruelty or indifference? That is what I'm trying to begin. A search for a sober apocalypse, a slow apocalypse, a confrontation with perishing infinitude and fragility, but one that fills us with at least as much wonder as dread, more political energy than resignation, and takes seriously that apocalypses are not ends, but irreversible transitions. These events punctuate our cosmic epic. As events, they are sometimes catastrophic, sometimes tragic and cruel, and sometimes generative. However, they are always more and less than an extinction. It is the end of something, but never the end. I do not want the attention of care for our apocalypse to be a scare tactic or even necessarily an exhortation to action, but rather a way to bring into focus just how intimate a creative universe must be with fragility. I'm quite fond of aspects of our species, but I also see its limits and dangers to creativities outside our narrow trajectory of life. What I hope to do is push further from out from the Eurocene and even the human estate in hopes that the trajectories of our becomings be more than simply components of the emerging apocalyptic transition. Instead, we need to propel forward those characteristics, those forms of life, those freaks that fill us with reverence and wonder. If every apocalypse is more and less than an extinction, then what will our heritage be? What trace can we leave on the future? What interventions can be made in the swirling incipiencies of our apocalypses that are gaining momentum? Apocalypses are certainly are certain and all things perish, but maybe the inflection of each passing and the condition of each new beginning are mutually unsettled, undetermined, and waiting for a creative, wilder nudge. This is my speculative wager. Thanks. There's uh, so many places to start. And, and I think that, um, for me, is one of the strongest gifts that your book brings is that it does not have um, a center or a top or a first. You know what I mean? Um, there's an order because it's a book, right? So you got to read it from the front to the back, I suppose. You could actually read it in any order you like because technically I think it's three books crammed into one um, that are neatly divided. Um, but as you move through all three of them, you start to understand um, a lot of things you were bringing together um, and I think to start, um, this notion of fragility, I think, is really important because for all of the bad news that's in your book, it's actually really gentle. Um, the, 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 the stuff you're dealing with is heavy, but you invite us into it with um, this really interesting balance of, like, you know, the traditional academic perspective of, like, this guy said this and I'm riffing on that. But there's always this undertone of um, trying to help us see something new, and I think... Um, in honor of 9-11, in honor of something that happens a lot in San Francisco when you open any event is to acknowledge the first people. So I think that um, let's start with how you're talking about the Eurocene over the Anthropocene. Um, and as one point to start to give people a hook, 
is this notion where you draw these lines backwards through the history and the ecology of warfare to this notion of insurgency, right? And you talk a lot about these sort of paramilitary organizations that were active during the early colonization um, that military historians want to say, that's just the old stuff and we don't do that anymore and this is the new way we fight war. So let's start there and like in, in that first Holocaust that's triggered these climate shifts. Um, let, let's start there. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so the book leads off uh, with the first anthropogenic climate event, which was actually cooling. So humans made the planet cold before they made it hot. Uh, and the reason why is because they let loose so much disease in the Americas uh, that 90% of the indigenous population died. Um, and this is, a, this is a crazy event, right? Because like, in addition to the fact that in 10 years, which is how long it took the, the, the second wave to come back, um, they thought that all of the stories from the first wave were made up. So for the longest time, it was the position of historians that all of these stories about these immense cities, these huge civilizations, they were basically the crazed fantasies of the first wave of conquistadors. Uh, it actually wasn't until about 30 years ago when they, and very recently in the last 10 years, they've been able to confirm it. They started using lasers to map the vast forests of South and Central and even parts of North America. And they realized that it only took 10 years to collapse whole civilizations. Uh, right. So like that, that's how fast the forest grew back. Um, and for me, that's that's a that's a that's a war event. Uh, but it's an unusual one because it was one that Europe could have taken back. Right. They didn't actually have to take advantage of the fact that they had devastated whole civilizations that, uh, to be perfectly honest, if those civilizations had remained intact, European colonialism would have been a counterfactual. Right. Rather than the counterfactual I'm, I'm telling. They would have never had the numbers. Uh, to take on that many people. Um, but instead, they used the crisis, right? What's the Milton Freeman line? Never let a crisis go to waste. They used the crisis uh, to destroy what was the survivors of the first American apocalypse. Uh, and so one of the things I try to do in the book is show that that actually was a European art. Uh, there are a number of texts, one that I focus on quite a bit, by a guy named Vargas, on how to hunt Indians, which begins at the sort of early part of the 1500s, um, as the sort of raison d'etre of what folks should be doing to clear America so that it could become something more. Uh, and it's clearly a tradition that carries on. Uh, it's, a, it's a counterinsurgency field manual, right? It's, it's how to organize militias against the Indios. Um, and I try to track how consistent that becomes as an American tradition, right? as a Spanish tradition in the Southwest, as a French tradition in the Ohio River Valley, as a nascent American tradition in the East Coast, and then continues unabated. Uh, and what's amazing is that when we tried to have these, these sort of moments in Iraq and Afghanistan where we said, oh, the United States doesn't know how to fight counterinsurgencies anymore. We forgot that because Vietnam scared us so much. The reality was it never stopped at West Point. So like I've gone through all of the archives. Right? There are consistent dissertations comparing how the Sioux were wiped out to how to fight in the Philippines and then how to fight the Sioux in the Philippines in Malay, then in Malay in Vietnam, then in Vietnam in the drug wars in Mexico. So for me, it's a it's, part of the book is it's about these massive punctuations, but it's also this incredible continuity, which I think for whatever reason, we don't like to acknowledge, right? We don't like to see it as kind of a bedrock of what it was to have an American founding. I guess that's sort of the best way I can explain it. 
So two riffs there. One, it really made me think of Bob Marley's Buffalo Soldier in another light, because um, it's already a song that's kind of deeply ambivalent, right? Because on one hand, it's like, oh, you know, it's these black guys, you know, proud to be black, and they're on the frontier, but it's like, but they're killing Indians. And the way that Marley even writes it is he has some of that ambiguity that you're sort of trying to point out that, you know, fighting on arrival, fighting for survival, that like they were not patriots in that action. And Marley leaves that open. So I want to put that out there for everyone as a hook to get into some of what Jarris is thinking about. You know, you can think about the Buffalo Soldiers as an immediately accessible model of, of these counterinsurgents. Um, and then I'm going to flip to this 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 word this term that you use in speaking around that about the user space because I think that's another great term that people can get their heads around this idea that um, you have to think about the the insurgency and the exploitation of the disease and the depopulation but the reason to do that is to standardize the land and the people that will occupy that space and that's another thread that I think goes through the whole book this idea of the homogenization that you're talking about yeah I mean. Part of what I'm trying to do is there's a there's two things that I think that we we have this habit of doing. One is to think about poverty in terms of a lack of stuff, uh, and unfortunately, right now I think poverty around the world is almost the opposite. It's the tyranny of things. Uh, it's an onslaught and tidal wave of waste, uh, cheap food that is calorie dense but nutrition poor, uh, inexpensive things that you don't need, uh, but that you can have access to, and then things that you do need, like education, that will keep you in debt for the rest of your life. Right? We have this very strange relationship between uh, abundance uh, and the way that we used to think about it. Right? So we have an incredible abundance and incredible poverty at the same time. Um, the other, and, and I actually I want to pick up on the Buffalo Soldier part for a second, too. I, I mean, one of the things that I really try to do in the book is we also have a tendency to think that this was strategy. Um, but part of the reason why I call it an ecology is it's, it's amazing how many ambivalent people, right? People who are stuck in these situations who didn't know how to get out of it contributed to making uh, what Alfred Crosby called neo-Europe's, right? The reason why North America was dominated in a way initially that Africa was not dominated is because Europeans do not deal well with disease and heat or spaces they couldn't make like Europe. Uh, and so most of the trees in America are European trees. Right? They literally tore the guts out of North America and made a Europe. Uh, and for me, like that's again, it's one of these continuities. That's what the sort of like ergonomics movement for cars, interface movement for user-friendly software, right? It's about user spaces. It's about having access points. It's about trying to smooth the rough edges where you don't have to see how things work. Um, there's a great historian who's all too forgotten named Lewis Mumford who said that the, when mechanization really took hold was when they figured out product design because people forgot what was inside all the boxes uh, and that that was actually an essential part of alienating people from technology. Right? They didn't know how an engine worked anymore. They didn't know. I mean, think about how many of us could rebuild our iPhones. I mean, I'm guessing maybe a couple in this room, but very few. Uh, and even then, I, I bet you could know how, but I doubt you'd pull it off. Uh, right, unless you got a clean room. Uh, so, like, but th this idea of user space as the way to make violence invisible, uh, to make things invisible, 
uh, and functional at the same time, right? So that there can be a deep ambivalence towards all this violence, right? Like no one's, I mean, now we have more people cheering it than ever, but whatever, like not everyone is cheering violence, right? Like not everybody is like excited about Trump. Um, and they can live the same life and have in many ways the same horrifying impact on the world and the people in the world precisely because of that user space. Mm-hmm. Which brings up um, for me another great turn of phrase you have in this, which is you don't talk about life forms, you talk about forms of life. And that sounds like just sort of a clever poetic reversal, but the more you come across this in the book, the more work it does when you just flip these terms around. Um, so speak to that a little bit, the idea of like forms of life, and I'd like you to segue that into um, how you thought about the IED, because I think that is a pretty radical original gesture that you make in sort of looking at um, the improvised explosive device, not so much as this sort of single boogeyman that we heard about in the news, but as this crystallization of all the junk that's flowing out of, out of the West and accumulating in the so-called third world, right? So the, the junk cell phones, the, the things that look like cassette tapes. And what you do in, in, in the book is you, um, you give the, I, the IED the ecological treatment, right? And many times you talk about ecology as not just green and plants and bugs, but this idea of deep, lasting relationships, that the deeper you go into the relationship, the more complex it gets, right? And you do that with the IED, and one of the ways you keep returning to that idea so that we can think about blood that way, so we can think about mind control that way, is this idea of forms of life. Um, so I took form of life from this Viennese philosopher named Ludwig Wittgenstein. Um, and his notion of form of life was that he was a language philosopher, and he was intervening in like how to explain language. And one of the things he realized very early on was that language was like, like the very, very, very end point of meaning. Uh, And so what he meant by form of life was that what gives life to language is like gesture, habit, ancestors, everything that you're imbued in, that actually you start taking that stuff away and words become impossibly meaningless. Anybody who works on semantic web crawlers or tries to develop AI knows how quickly words become meaningless. Like it's meaning doesn't like hold together very well. It's, It's hard. Um, and then this other guy named Giorgio Ogamben tried to push it further. He's like, you know what? It's, it's not just gesture. It's not just culture. It's that stuff of life that isn't studied by biology, but that if you took it away, the people you took it from would die. Uh, and it, Say that again? Yeah. 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 So I'm going to give an example. Um, you know, I could have just used the term race or the term identity, but it wouldn't get there. And here's my example. Right now, there's about 1,500 Native Hawaiians holding one of the last pieces of sacred land they have. Uh, It's happening on Manawakea. The university wants to build a telescope there. They basically want to gut the mountain out, think mountaintop removal in Kentucky. Uh, And they're holding it. Uh, And they're holding it because they built a university there. They literally, like, they have, they built a library for their kids there. And this is not an easy place to live, right? There are blizzards there, right? They have held this place for 58 days now. Um, What it means to be there, to practice hula there, to, to make a life in this place and demonstrate to the world what sacredness means in an object, right? We think of a mountain as a thing, right? They think about it where the cosmos began, is impossible to capture by saying that someone is Hawaiian, right? Because there are plenty of people who could pass the federal government's blood quantum test 
for being Hawaiian, for which this would be a meaningless phenomena. But I promise you, taking things like Mauna Kea away from Hawaiians literally deprives them of life. And the way that I know that is because that's literally how Hawaiians were depopulated. Right? So Hawaiian population from the time of the overthrow of the queen uh, to about 1940 was depopulated by 90%, one of the most rapid genocides in the world. And nearly never was a shot fired. Language was taken. Food was taken. The ability to grow their own food was taken. The ability to dance and communicate with one another through their own newspapers was taken. And so we think about this sort of like culture biology split, but the reality is like the life and the place you inhabit is the sustenance that gives life life. And so for me, I wanted to focus on that form of life, not just the life form. Because when we talk about human rights, we're like, oh, where are they getting enough to eat? Well, that's, that's actually not always as important as what are they eating? Uh, and until we can see that interchange, then I think a lot of the violence that takes place in the world starts to become invisible as long as you know, there's a refugee camp and someone's getting food, or as long as you know, somebody in a particular neighborhood has this many possibilities for a job option, or right, that, that more subtle form of violence that deprives people of dignity and a way of life right, gets lost. So that's, that's sort All of right. the, yeah. So now we'll, we'll hyperlink to the IED. Because, okay. I mean, this is connected. It's not <laughs> yeah. connected by words. It is a little bit, yeah. <laughs> but, but it is connected by spirit. This yeah. idea that, like, people yeah. defeated the number one military on the planet with garbage that exploded. Yeah. I mean, part of it was the irony. That's, that's always nice when you're an academic. You're like, hey, I've got some irony. Uh, so... <laughs> But it's also tragic, right? Like, I mean, it killed a lot of people. Uh, and the reality is that improvised explosive devices also killed more civilians than they did soldiers. Um, but it's also fascinating, right? Like, it's one of these moments that, like, makes Greek tragedy Greek tragedy because it's a moment of hubris, right? So the, the United States walks into Iraq and particularly Afghanistan, and they're like, well, this is going to be a cakewalk, right? We all heard that. This was going to be a fast war. In fact, hopefully, there's some people in the room that are too young, but... Most of you probably remember Bush standing in front of the Mission Accomplished banner. Uh, and that was because technology was supposed to be... <clears throat> More coffee. <laughs> Our technology was supposed to be so superior. And the way that we knew that is we had done these, these, this like census of Iraqi and Afghani technology. And in Iraq, we, we determined that the average like education age was like... Mm, around fifth grade in Afghanistan. Uh, it was, in some cases, no education at all, uh, thanks to, like, years of war with the Soviet Union and the United States. Uh, and so there was no chance they were going to rebuild anything. Uh, and then the United States starts basically making no ground, right? Like, after the first 90 days, they're making no ground. Uh, and they can't figure out what it is uh, because every time they have to bring in more equipment because we're a total supply chain empire, right? We cannot fight in place for more than a week, to be perfectly honest, right? You've got to get those brown and root meals in. You've got to get new right, equipment in. You've got to replace armaments constantly. And how do you do it? Well, you do it with semi-trucks on roads. Uh, well, the roads kept exploding. Uh, and they were like, okay, cool. All right, well, yeah, right, that's fine. Uh, but they're going to run out of weapons, right? Um, well, here was the problem. Iraq had around three landmines for every Iraqi. Uh, in the soil. Afghanistan had a little bit more than that left behind by the Soviet Union. They had the largest stockpile of munitions uh, because everyone who had left them there thought it was garbage. Uh, and they married those landmines to discarded cell phones, garage door openers, 
laser pointers, radios. And the second the United States figured out, oh, well, fine, you know, if it's a heat sensor, if it's a light sensor, if it's a radio sensor, we'll actually, we'll create these devices. It was this huge program that cost about two and a half billion dollars to counter them. Uh, and within two weeks of deploying what has a $2 billion price tag, because we only got one system off the ground, all they figured out was that they would just put the landmine on a tripod and point it at a 30-degree angle. So when the diffuser set it off, it shot it right at the MRAP uh, or the tank uh, and went right through the armor. Uh, and there was something like amazing, but there was also like it didn't make sense. And the reality was it was... It wasn't just that these people were brilliant at making these weapons, and there's there's a brilliance there too, but it's also because they were part of the environment where they were having that brilliant thing take place, right? And that the United States had this amazing vulnerability, which is it, it couldn't make its own weapons in, on site. It couldn't live without brown and root meals, uh, and they totally took advantage of it. Uh, and it was one of these moments where a form of life, one that's basically a Walmart empire of war, came in contact with an improvised economy because Clinton had killed 500,000 Iraqis with sanctions, and so Iraqis had gotten really good at rebuilding stuff out of stuff they already had, and it was no match, uh, right? The United States basically pulled the majority of its troops out of Iraq for that reason. Uh, same thing happened in Afghanistan. That one was even crazier because supposedly they didn't have basic electronics knowledge, uh, and they pulled it off too. Uh, and I think that says something about the ways in which knowledge moves around the world, the way ideas form. Unfortunately, it also says something for me about the long tail of war. Uh, the reason why Iraq and Afghanistan were ready for this war is because they had never stopped fighting it since the 1970s and 80s. This war had never ended for them. Uh, and there's a kind of U.S. arrogance, which I think they found out very quickly. And I think on that point, like what... Where at certain points when you describe these things and argue them in the book, um, it's very tempting to just take a slightly smug attitude of like, oh, yeah, the U.S., you know, they blew it again because we underestimated those colored people, right? And we can sort of sit in a measure of comfort to say, well, yeah, you know, maybe this is just going to go on forever. We're going to keep underestimating people of color, and maybe, maybe at some point it'll all break down. But you undermine that position by pushing us further into the philosophy of it, right? And, and that, that is, for me, is what kept me moving through the book, is that it's not just a layering of facts, so that when I think about the IED as this response to counterinsurgency, right? And you have to start thinking of both, both of these things at the same time, right? Like, none of, none of what Jairus is doing in the book, you're, supposed, you're not supposed to put any of these ideas down as you move through it. You know, you have to cobble together new stuff um, as you're moving through the book. And that's the invitation, right? Um, so for me, like when you when you you give us the facts of the IED, but then you remind us of, of that larger ecology, um, that's the shift that I really appreciate. And I was wondering if you could talk about like what what it took for you to get your own self into that space of thinking ecologically, right? Because it's not easy. Um, and just you as a thinker, as a writer, as a parent, or whatever, like what was it? that brought you to the point where you could even begin to hold all this stuff together without it just being a pile of stuff? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, I made a lot of bombs as a kid. That helps. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in Houston, Texas on the bayou. You could blow up anything you wanted, and it was all wet and mushy, and nothing got hurt. And I'm not kidding. We used to... Well, I bugs mean, got hurt, right? Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> uh, 
more like the I'll never have hair on the back of my hands. Uh, so, <laughs> no, I. But th there was an ethical reason, to be perfectly honest. Like mm -hmm. I, I came of age as an academic studying international relations, thinking I might go the kind of like hard nosed. I'll tell people how to do things in very specific ways. I can make the world better if I can just like push a little harder and we'll make smarter decisions. Um, and one of the major I insights of when I was going to graduate school was this statistical claim that war was declining. Um, and that, that that was evidence that the world was getting better. Uh, this guy, Joshua Goldstein, had shown that since the end of the Cold War, uh, that there was a significant decline uh, of war in the world. And then, you know, our favorite Epstein buddy, uh, Steve Pinker, uh, picked this up uh, and decided to tell the world and the better angels uh, that don't worry, folks, I know it looks bad, but actually, like, humans are really, like, they're working this out. It's all okay. Um, and that just seemed crazy to me. You know, like, I lived in Bogota for a little while. I, like, have been going to Mexico my whole life. Like, I knew what was going on in Juarez. I knew that 60,000 civilians had been killed in five years in the cartel wars. Like, statistical decline in war. What was going on? And so, like, I wanted to try to figure out how serious scientists, right, following, like, predictable methodologies, seemingly with the best data in the world, could come to a conclusion that seemed ludicrous to me. And the answer was because they, they had narrowly defined the parameters, right? Wars were events that killed more than 300 people between two defined or two or more defined groups in less than two weeks on a battlefield, basically. And it's like, oh, well, that's great. Because like, that's like saying there's a significant decline in war because there's a significant decline in catapult deaths in 1920, right? Like, yes, there is a decline in catapult deaths, right? Because war doesn't look like that anymore, right? Uh, and so I started from this premise that something had changed in the nature of war, in, in some instances on purpose, so that it would move too slow to be seen. Um, and when I started that project, what I realized was war had always had that feature. Right? There had always been this ecological character of war. If it were the, you know, the 16th century manuals that said, make sure you kill all the food that the natives need uh, so that you can force them to particular areas, make sure you use dogs because they're stealthier at night than you are and the dogs will alert you, all the way through to satellite transparency and intelligence. Right? Like there had always been this characteristic where we fight the war for decades before we fight the war, right? That the forms of violence get literally baked into the infrastructure, the user space of the system. Um, so I wanted to try to like look and see who was thinking about stuff like that. And I read Gregory Bateson, who was sort of an anthropologist, cyberneticist. I read a bunch of other cyberneticists like Norbert Wiener. Um, there was a political scientist named Carl Deutsch who had already tried to use cybernetics and political science. And it, it seemed like the goal was to move from a place where we were counting objects to one where we were studying and chasing relations. And what I mean by that is when you count individual deaths as events, you lose the history. You lose how they got killed. You lose why they got killed. When you think about relations, you start thinking about what produced the condition of possibility for this death to happen. What was the 50-year history that led up to it being possible to invade this country? or to have the right to fly a drone over an area. And that's when I think things like settler colonialism came back into focus. I think that's when I started thinking about why it was sort of impossible to think about climate change or pollution or any of these other things without also thinking about war at the same time. Because, I mean, let's be honest, like, it's not just the Anthropocene because of 
carbon emissions. It's the Anthropocene because of nuclear radiation. It's the Anthropocene because of plastics. It's the Anthropocene because of worldwide disease spread. And most of those happen in war. Um, both J.F.C. Fuller, the creepy British general, and uh, Lewis Mumford made the point that there's almost no scientific invention in the Western world that wasn't first created on the battlefield uh, and then adapted uh, for civilian life. And that's a big thing to swallow. That's, I think that's some crazy, crazy business uh, to think that we live in a martial ecology. So. Yeah, it kind of upends a lot of things we were talking a little bit about before we came over, like how people are not ready to, to think ecologically as much as even a place like San Francisco like takes so much pride in being green. Um, the work of actually thinking through relations is like really not easy. So how did you get there? I mean, like, how, how did you, I mean, because it's, I, I appreciate the, the sort of intellectual heritage, but I'm also wondering about what your form of life was, yeah. right, that even put you in that space, because so much of what your book is inviting us to do is to, like, figure out where you are at, as this bristling connection into this mess, right? And, and obviously, like, just claiming an allegiance to an identity or a political alignment or even a neighborhood is not enough, right? So I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about what it, what what the, what the forms of life were besides blowing stuff up in yeah. Texas, right? That 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 got you here. You know, it's it's funny. It's a weird timing. For, I'm I'm of course I'm an academic, so I'd start the next book immediately, uh, and it's a book on wait for it violence because uh, you know I've got war cracked. I got to crack violence. Uh, I've been trying to go through what I think. It's a weird thing to want to study, right? Like. I could have studied a lot of different things. Why was I attracted to violence? Um, and I was trying to think about the moments when I was confronted by something and I just couldn't, like, make sense of it. And, uh, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of them, but there are three that have really been, like, in my head a lot lately. Um, so I took a long break off from graduate school and moved uh, back to Texas for a little while to a place called Victoria, Texas. Uh, and the day before I arrived at my new house, it's, it's sort of like in South Texas, it's called the Golden Triangle. It's basically where all the shipping routes between Mexico and Texas are. Uh, and two things happened on the same day, and it just, it really, like, it affected me, and still does. One was a guy named Lucas Adam Weiser uh, was uh, sleeping on a bench in Corpus Christi, Texas, about 10 miles away, and he was doused with gasoline. Um, and six guys, basically rat boys, lit him on fire and watched him burn. Oh my God. Um, and it, it was a weird event for a lot of reasons. It was like this incredible act of cruelty, which seemed to have no fight. Mm -hmm. But it was also, it was a new kind of media event for me because the entire thing had been captured on a surveillance camera. And that kind of, I'd never seen something like that where, you know, you hear a report about this incredibly violent event, but in the local Texas news, they replayed this video this is a year after 9-11, uh, the way that they replayed the 9-11 video of this guy in flames screaming, running around in circles. Uh, and I, I just, like, I, I was shocked. And for whatever reason at the time, it connected to this moment from Fahrenheit 9-11 uh, where they, they see these soldiers chanting, um, burn, motherfucker, burn. Uh, and these kids were chanting as they were burning this guy. And I just, like, I couldn't not see this sadism happening at a national level feeding back to sadism happening at a local level. Uh, that same day, they found a truck with 76 dead bodies locked in the back of it. 
also in Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh, a coyote had decided he'd had his money, uh, left these people in the Texas summer at 110 degrees, and they all died. Uh, and I, I like they were disparate events, but like I couldn't treat them as disparate events anymore. Uh, I got to Baltimore two years later. I was living in East Baltimore, and actually where they shot the wire. Uh, and we started having crazy amounts of like police kicking in doors. I was told to step away from my windows multiple times, uh, not by police officers, but by police and helicopters. So helicopters were shining spotlights into our second floor windows, telling us we needed to step back. And it felt like military raids. Uh, and about six months after we got there, it came out that it was something called uh, Mission Coumadin. Um, why? Because they were going after the bloods. Coumadin's a blood thinner. Uh, and that they were training with Israeli special ops forces as well as American special ops forces to learn how to use the techniques of Gaza and the techniques of Iraq in Baltimore. And that was, that was like game over for me. I was just like, well, this is like I've, I'm being taught that I'm supposed to have these categories of like domestic and international. I'm taught that I'm supposed to have these categories of war and peace, these categories of environmentalism and security. And it just like that didn't look like the world. Uh, and so like that's that was kind of so perfect segue yeah. with the bloods. <laughs> yeah. Because um, one of the most illuminating parts of your section on blood is you do this great deconstruction of race as a myth. But you talk about how like blood as an object, as a entity, as a thing that makes decisions does make these choices. Right. Because. I, I might not be able to give you my blood and vice versa, and that's pretty real. Yeah. Right? But not because you're black and I'm Right, exactly. I'm <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's at a deeper level. Yeah. Um, so on one hand, you give us an amazing history, right? And, and yeah. just props to you for like going all the way back to Charles, Charles Drew and really you know, playing out this history of race and, and the, the irony, right, and the hypocrisy of one drops versus no drops. And I love the part where you talk about how the Germans were bleeding out because they didn't want to have impure blood, you know, that kind of stuff. I also like the, the hint that you talk about, like if you want to see where the military's headed, start seeing if they're starting to stockpile blood because that becomes a warning, you know, because they're getting ready to move. Um, Corolla's nodding because he's, yeah, he knows. Um, <laughs> um, but but I, I also want to talk about, I mean, talk a little bit about how you use blood as both this historical factor and also a really great lesson for thinking through these relationships. I'll try to say something else that adds to that. <laughs> uh, okay, so this was a weird one for me. I, I, I Again, because this is the way I do research, I was in the car with my partner uh, listening to NPR, and they were having a blood drive. Uh, and then the next story was about something that was going on in Iraq. And I was just like, where does the military get all this blood? Like, I just, like, I wanted to know, because, like, that's a lot of blood. Um, it ends up that similar to the strategic oil reserve, the United States has a strategic blood reserve. And the surgeons, the surgeon general, when there's plural, the surgeons general, uh, has the military standing to set the necessary amount of blood on hand at all times. And when you donate blood and you think that you're helping people, 
uh, a lot of it gets set aside actually until it's unusable because it goes in the strategic blood reserve. And then I just worked my way back in time. I was like, holy crap, like we have a strategic blood reserve, you know, like that's nuts. Uh, so I went all the way back and, you know, it started obviously during World War II. Because uh, previous to World War II, there was no way to do what's called fractionating blood, meaning separating plasma from other parts of blood. And plasma was really neat because you could dry it and you could ship it. And the place we needed to ship it was the UK. There was a problem. The only guy who knew how to fractionate blood was also the first African-American man to get a PhD and an MD from Columbia University. And the UK would not accept blood if there was any risk that the blood wasn't white. So the director of the DOD blood program had to sign an affidavit that he would never allow his own blood into the blood supply system that they were going to develop. Uh, and at the same time, the same thing's happening in Germany. And the Ger Germans passed something called the Nuremberg blood laws, that if at any moment you donated blood, even on the battlefield, and it was discovered that you weren't a pure race, you could be executed for having tainted the German military blood supply. The first person executed was a Jewish doctor who tapped his own arm during battlefield surgery and kept a German soldier alive uh, by doing a what was called on-the-hoof blood transfusion, completed the surgery, knew he was going to be killed, and was shipped to a camp. Uh, so what was interesting, though, is that this actually had military consequences. Uh, because the Germans, as a result, wouldn't give blood. So they started filling soldiers with liquid vinyl uh, in a hope that it would clot the wounds very quickly and they could survive the clot. No kidding. Um, the Americans, similarly, like they used the fact that they could be racist and have a huge population, right? Because it was, it was blackness. It wasn't other kinds of race. So they had this huge population. And what was amazing, though, is like at the same time, they were also having all these problems because they were trying to figure out like what was blood type, right? And it wasn't following racial lines. And this really pissed the DOD off because <laughs> the DOD wanted a scientific justification for why they segregated the blood supply but weren't racist like Hitler, right? Because like, they're, not, they're not Nazis, right? Like, no. Uh, and every time they brought back another research project, it was like, ah, actually, like, you're more likely, like, there's, there's no probability difference, you can't do it. And so blood was doing the work of anti-racism. And that's kind of cool. Like, there was kind of something kind of cool about blood being this obstinate fact that wouldn't give itself up to racial science. And so, you know, I, I wanted to walk this really hard line, which particularly is, you know, a, like, perceived white scholar, like, I, I don't want to say race isn't real. Like, people feel the violence of race constantly. But I also want to say racism is based on a bullshit scientific theory of race. And to do those two things at once is a hard thing to do. And so blood was my ally, right? Like blood got to show just how ridiculous the science was and just how real the racism was. Uh, and, and then, you know, I try to split the difference with form of life because I, I want to hold on to the fact that differences are real. You know, they, they, they make a difference. And assimilation is real, but like, you know... Blood, blood doesn't doesn't, right. doesn't care, <laughs> you know. Like, and that there's something interesting about that. So the so. the micro moral of that is that the book is littered with these great examples of where the world just pushes back. Like, no matter how much you want to bring your rationality, your politics, your science, or whatever to it, there are absolute material 
limits, not just limits of like, I can't do it, but the universe pushes back. It is actively on its own track. <laughs> Blood is doing its own thing. I felt partially alienated for myself reading some of that section. I was like, <laughs> like it's cooperating with me, but at any minute, <laughs> right? Like if the wrong thing gets into me, which of course connects us back to the first Holocaust and the microbes from the Europeans are suddenly exploiting the blood, right, or Europeans not being able to go into Africa because of malaria, sickle cell. I mean, you know, it, the more you know, the more the book activates itself. But the other, the other side of, of the blood issue um, is if, the, if your blood is this independent entity that by sheer luck you're stabilized by, um, there's, the, there's the fragility of the mind, right? There's the fragility of the self. Um, and that's where the brain section comes in, right? This idea that... Um, you know, the same forces that wanted that, you know, figured, well, sooner or later we'll figure out how to transport blood or also figuring out how to transport consciousness or halt it or pause it or do other things to it. And I think there's a, there's a really nice, there's a resonance between how you treat blood and how you treat mind control. Um, so if you could riff on that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, about the same, a decade after the blood research, uh, first the U.S. Navy, then the U.S. Air Force, um, began in earnest an effort to understand what was coming back as stories from the Korean War uh, about Chinese attempts to basically rob people of a personality, right, through extraordinary forms of deprivation, both like sensory deprivation, deprivation from anyone, basically solitary confinement, and then putting them back into circumstances where they would, because they were in a crisis, they would sort of attach or latch themselves onto people, right? So they'd have like fake prisoners they would latch onto. And, you know, originally it started supposedly, right, as a, how are we going to counter Chinese mind control? But of course, that's never how that ends. Uh, very quickly it came, how can the United States do this better? <laughs> Uh, and so there were a number of scientists. Uh, in fact, Gregory Bateson was involved in some of the projects. Uh, one of the, the primary people actually became quite a 60s guru in this area, John Lilly, who developed the original isolation tanks that people like to float in and like remap their consciousness with a little LSD. Uh, they were realizing that you could actually, depri if you deprived people of sensory input, they would start to forget who they were. Um, they would start to lose the capacity to hold their personalities together. They would become malleable. Uh, and when you added drugs to that equation or you added other kinds of interventions in people, including Jose Lugato's work, who actually founded the neuroscience program at Yale, but to continue his research, he went back to Franco, He's Spain. He's to stop the bull by remote control. Yeah, he right? started putting devices in people's brains, right? Realizing that if you could stimulate the right part of the brain, people either became fearless or overcome by fear. Right, that they could create emotions and people, um, and the sort of initial like response, like Aldous Huxley, you know, was really concerned about this. There were a lot of scholars. William Burroughs wrote a ton about this, and their position was something like, "Well, you know, like humans, humans have a soul. You can't take that away from them." Uh, and the problem was they could, uh, and it generally broke them. And oftentimes they were, you know, like they didn't come back, you know, pet cemetery style, right? They didn't come back right. Uh, but they didn't come back who they were either. Uh, and so part of the book is playing between the way in which fragility and how malleable we are is like the seat of incredible creativity, invention, finding new ways of life. But it's, it's also the vulnerability that allows for states to intervene in who we are uh, and to break who we are and realize that there's not, there's not like a net 
where like if things go too badly, you like hit rock bottom and that's it. Um, and the sort of way that that chapter ends, and I think it's really important, is that it ended up becoming the major way that torture was done during the Bush administration. And the reason why is because it doesn't violate major portions of the Geneva Convention. Uh, it doesn't leave scars. It doesn't leave bruises. Um, but it, it leads to people being stripped, literally, of who they were. Um, and, and I think, again, it's, it's part of one of these moments where, yeah, if we count the number of people who were shocked or the number of people who were waterboarded, then we can say this nice thing to ourselves. We can sing this lullaby. Look, we torture fewer people than, you know, I don't know, the Islamic Republic of Iran, or we torture fewer people than we did in 1969. And the answer is no. Um, what we did is we found ways to torture people that were more intimate, more destructive, and seemed like they fed into a kind of user space opera. I'm, I'm starting to lose it, but uh, the, to the sort of operationalized control, right? They could make control happen at a at a at a more subtle level. And the the key the key point being that at a certain point, and I, I think I like how you you bring up the examples of like Alzheimer's and brain injury as, as the situation where like some points are are not recoverable, right? So there's a, there's a conceivable horizon where if your brain is remapped and you forget that you are remapped, it's a whole new thing. Right. I think the, the, the folly of the, the old, old school brainwashing was that with sufficient care, folks could actually come back and regain their quote unquote humanity. But with full control over you know, neurochemistry, the idea is that I could take you away and then make you forget that you were taken away. Right. And that that becomes the, 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 the little ratchet that I think powers that last part of the book, that it's like there's certain things that that the, the, the martial ecology is working with that are just it's not going to be business as usual as certain frontiers are crossed. It's not just like, oh, that's just another Holocaust bummer. I'll send some money. It's like there's certain things operating that, that will be irreparable. Right. And, and you put us in a space where on one hand, that's an army of zombies, and an army of happy people. But you're also saying that that's the same space that new definitions of the human. And by that, I don't mean post-human. I mean just new way, new forms of life emerge. Right. So I think because I guess we're going to give it up for general discussion. Yeah. But I think that point of like inviting us to think about that, that tightrope that we walk between forgetting who we were, but also willingly trying to forget yeah. who we were. Yeah, I'll just say take an iPad or a phone away from almost any kid under 15 and watch how physically painful it is for them to recoup. Uh, right? Like, we have a dopamine economy. Uh, and, you know, people are like, oh, well, we don't have chips in people's brains. Um, this would be another one of those moments. Great, we have a significant reduction in brain chips. <laughs> Catapults, brain chips, great. Good, that's the good news, right? Uh, but that's because we don't need them, right? So the vision of Delgado and the, the vision of those who wanted to be able to manage populations, right? They, they thought in terms of chips, but we should be thinking in terms of fake news, and we should be thinking in terms of strategic media, and we should be thinking in terms of marketed and commodified forms of pleasure and enjoyment. And, you know, like that's 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 kind of where the book ends. It's like, yeah, there's an incredible amount of creativity here. But if you think that we're going to fight for something like a good life, and I, the book's really against this idea of like winning survival going on forever. It's actually about like, how do we accept that the world is unalterably 
broken and that we still have to find love, joy, connection, relations. And we can't tie those things to like winning the war on climate, right? Like we will become unbelievably cruel bastards to one another if we have to win in order to love. Um, but at the same time, the way we're going to make those spaces is it's, it's not going to be protest politics. Like right. that's, that's not going to get it done against an economy that can manage what you want. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. So you want to open it up for, for questions, comments? Yeah. Um, so I'm curious. Uh, Who are you first? Oh, I'm Julie. I'm Jarris. I'm curious. So I heard an interesting conversation recently about how neoliberalism, can everyone hear me? How neoliberalism and leaders who maintained peace and balance were helpful for capitalism and capitalist financial forces, right? And how now there's a shift to where catastrophe and oligarchy is actually more advantageous to the way capitalism is transforming. And I'm curious to yeah, I deal with those assholes a lot. Um, no, I'm not kidding. Like, there, there's actually there's a really significant neo-monarchist movement. Uh, a lot of it's in California. Um, so, uh, the Claremont Review of Books was like a, a site where this happened quite a bit, and it was it's interesting because it's it is a very different. It's it's one of the reasons why like I have to listen to Alex Jones and I have to like read all of the crazy stuff that goes on in the world is that like the new right is not the old right. Uh, and the new version of the right that you see in the intellectual spaces, you know, question, you know, uh, of, of groups like the Proud Boys, uh, right, which are like neo-fascist stormtroopers, are reading things about why the free market is just like not an option. Uh, we need new forms of authoritarianism. Uh, we need new aristocracies uh, because we need forms of legitimacy and authority. Uh, that can ride out catastrophes and take advantage of them. And so, like, you've got that little bit of that, like, disaster capitalism of the kind of, like, monetarists like Milton Freeman and, and others who could see the advantage. But you have a vision of the state and a vision of politics that's radically different. Uh, and I think if we're still banging on about neoliberalism, we're, like, 20 years behind. Uh, because those people, I mean, Peter Thiel helped fund like the last six months of Trump's campaign. And he's like one of those neo-monarchists, right? Like he's like set up his like away apocalypse bunker in New Zealand. Uh, he helped, he's half of the Alex Karp team that founded Palantir. Everybody knows what Palantir is. They're the ones who do all the spying on you, but they're a private company, right? They scrape your cell phones. They have a massive Python database for like the whole internet and they feed the NSA all the data so that it's not like, you know, a, a violation. Yeah. Um, and for those of you who are philosophy nerds, you'll like this. Thiel was a Rene Girard student. Karp was a Jürgen Habermas student. And the, uh, the tagline for Palantir is making the public sphere safe again. And so it's this elitist idea of like, like carving out these garrison states where, you know, like a, a new 
Versailles can can pretend that they're democratic and the rest of the world can be managed. And, you know, like, I, this is one of the other things I push a lot with my students, and then I'll shut up, uh, is that, like, the border wall is absolutely racist. But the border wall is not because of racism. The reason why there's support for the border wall within the Department of Defense is because it's been a major component of climate mitigation for 20 years. Uh, they have a vision of the world in which climate change cannot be stopped. There'll be massive refugee crises. And if there isn't an infrastructure to stop those refugees, the United States will not be able to maintain national security. And, and those, we won't be able to escape either. So it's yeah, like the, the wall but, keeps us in. But those resonances are really important because that means that there are a bunch of hyper-rationalistic people who couldn't care less about the... But of course, they're racist too. It's just like they've got to rationalize racism. But that's a very different kind of modus operandi than the like Trump populism. And I, I think there's more of that neo-monarchist and sort of like techno-elitist structure to Trump than there is working class Appalachia, Michigan, Pennsylvania. So I don't know if that answers your question. What's that? He's the chosen one. Yeah, he is obviously he's the chosen one. I was also thinking more about how, how catastrophes feed into the economic system. Oh, yeah. Now, Yeah, who's going to get the contract in Bermuda, right? Yeah, yeah I, I, I totally think, I mean, Naomi Klein's line on that I think is accurate, right? Like, we will always have disaster capitalists. The one thing that I, I kind of want to push back a little bit on to Klein, though, is that it's amazing how many capitalists want to exit that system. Uh, that want to find new ways to make capital. And what I mean by that is to break out of a labor theory of capital, right? So, you know, radical, yeah. So labor theory of capital, right? Where does money come from? Money comes from the fact that your wages are not the same as the value of your labor. That's where where new money comes from, right? Marx agrees, right? Marx obviously said that, but like there's no economist left or right who doesn't think that that's where money comes from. Uh, We think that's the limit to capital, I think if you look at Thiel's vision, if you look at Elon Musk's vision, it is not a vision where you derive profit or value from labor. It's how to create labor after an automated economy where human labor is almost totally unnecessary. And one of the things I, I draw a little bit into the book, but it's really important to me right now, is you know we tend to talk about the drones in the military in a totally separate room in conversation as the drones in the factory. But the reality is they are both fatal pincers to democracy. Soldiers refusing to fight and workers refusing to work are the two most powerful engines of a democratization in the 19th and 20th century. And taking away that capacity changes fundamentally the physics of politics. The thermodynamics of politics and the thermodynamics of capitalism change when those two features are not human. Uh, So I, I do think we'll still have disaster capitalism in the interim, but they're already like... How do we get the idea of eliminating resistance, right? So if yeah. you can know if your resistance no longer matters because the money is coming from somewhere else, then what do you do? So where does the money come from? If it doesn't based on you don't need money. You no longer need money. It's just you just create value. Right. You pay attention, <laughs> and no, you I- get your thousand dollars a month, which many of us will happily vote for, right? Yeah, I want a thousand dollars a month. Right, but you're still paying your cell phone bill somehow, 
right? You're still caught in whatever your preferred news cycle is or your preferred political content. I mean, whatever you love will be what generates value for the system. But it's also the irony. It's just an elitist version of communism, right? It's, it's breaking out of a model where you need to generate new wealth in order to have stuff. It's a very small group who can produce whatever they want without cash, right? Like, it's not just a cashless economy. It's, it's literally a fiat currency-less economy. You don't need the mediation of, of something with representative value. I mean, that, like, those are the things they imagine when they imagine uploading their consciousness or when they imagine colonizing Mars or these, like, crazy cruise ships they've tried to build. Did everybody know about these? There are these libertarian cruise ships, which are in international waters, so you don't have to, to, to pay taxes, uh, and the, all the money comes from like Bitcoin mining and other weird features. And, yeah, it's called seasteading. Uh, it, it's mostly been a debacle, but it, that's the vision, right? Like most visions are debacles the first time around. It doesn't actually mean that they're not going to happen. So, yeah. Next question. Uh, yeah. Molly. Um, to your point about like, people less wealth, um, I've been wondering like, where will capitalists like, drive value from? Once you know, they achieve like the grand goal of uploading everything into consciousness, or achieving, um, you know, whatever you said about communism, for, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, and I, you know, wondering if that is in anticipation of the big die-off. Yeah. That it yeah, I mean, it's amazing how many really, really wealthy people who do nothing but make their money off oil who are also, like, they're convinced that we're running out of oil and that climate change is happening. So, like, they're, they are, like, in for a penny, in for a pound, right? Like, the UAE thinks there's one generation of oil left, and they're going to get to Mars before it runs out. Uh, and they're not taking the millions of Pakistani, Thai laborers, Filipino laborers with them, right? So there, there is a sense that, like, not everybody's going to make it, right? It's like, it's techno-Calvinism, right? They're going to be the capitalist elect. Um, the value question is really interesting. I, I do this kind of speculative thing in the book. Don't hold me to it. I might change my mind in five years. But I've been reading a lot from a guy named George Bataille, who we probably only read in the United States initially because it got published here. Um, but he has this idea that you can have other kinds of general economy, and one of them is sadism. And I think actually one of the things that you see when people become overcome by leisure, totally invested uh, in uh, the production of pleasure at the expense of others is that it ceases to be instrumental, meaning they have to like make their peace with the, the, dis the exploitation, and they, they enjoy it. It becomes the source of value. And I, I, it's hard not to think that w when someone like Paul Ryan like gives everybody a copy of Ayn Rand on Christmas and, like, you know... <laughs> bragged to his fraternity brothers that he was going to destroy welfare, right? It wasn't because he was going to set people free. Like, it's because he wanted to watch them suffer. Like, and I, I believe we need to take seriously the idea that, like, humans are capable of reorganizing their lives around an economy of sadism. Um, and the reason why is because there is a, there's a weird liberal conceit we have that, like, if you just make a better argument, if you can just show how you'd optimize the system and the welfare actually wouldn't even cost them taxes. Like, this is the Yang fallacy for me. I like Yang for a lot of reasons, because at least he's talking about managing technology. Not well, but like, 
no one else can even like spell Google. Um, but the problem is that like some people don't want it to work better because the not working better is the part they like. Uh, and I think we have to take that seriously um, and get out of this sort of functionalist conceit that like, you know, they're just, they're like everybody else. They just have a different opinion on what works. No, I don't, I don't think they're like everybody else. I would also caution against the logic of skipping to the end. Like in your question was this idea of like, let's just skip to when this is complete. And I think what, what Jairus's book does is it forces you to slow down and really take these processes into account because just because the, the Thiels and the Musks want to do it doesn't mean it's going to happen. And that's the meat of the issue. So the question becomes, like, what processes do we have to pay attention to? And what new ways of thinking do we need to practice in order to figure out? It's not, it might not even be about stopping it, but it might be about how you divert your own resources and your own community's resources um, away from that. I mean, one of the things I tell my students is, like, they're, they're, some of the... So I said, they want to they want to skip to the end of the world, and it's like, well, we're we're not actually there yet. So it's like to to, to judge your logic on assuming that it's already over, um, is not the right way to proceed. And like, what Jairus is trying to do is to show you a how damn hard it is to think about what's actually going on because you got to think forward and backward in time, and at different scales. But like, that's that's that work. I remember we were in class once, and I forget what we were debating. Um, and you asked me, like, well, how, you know, how would you get to me to cross the room? And I was like, I could pop lock towards you, <laughs> right, as a, as a completely Damn different mode. Like, I don't have to walk from here to there, like, left foot. I can pop lock, and having pop lock from here to there is a completely different approach. What's pop lock? Oh, uh, if I, like, you way know, of sort of break dance my way over, <laughs> right? Like, you know, to not just walk over to you when you say, David, come here, but, like... To cross that space in a radically different way it is it, it creates a whole new moment because he's going to look at me like what the hell are you doing right you know and that's where the opportunities I think come from you know what I mean so not to knock your question down but I think that idea of asking asking what's next in terms of assuming it's done um, is what the book is trying to work against. Yeah. Oh, there's a hand up over there. So you you started to talk by talking about a wildness. Um, a way to, I, don't, I don't know, I wanted to hear more about that because you didn't really talk about that at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the feral. Yeah. Pop, yeah. Pop, 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 I don't know, what's the expression? Pop locking, yeah. Breakdancing. It sounds like that's yeah. a similar thing going on there, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, so the, the whole last chapter is on something that I called feral reason. So, like, what happens when we stop viewing everything instrumentally? Uh, right, everything is just to get us to the next thing, um, and part like what if there is no next thing? You know, like what if like the next couple hours, the next couple of days, the next couple of years, the next couple of decades is what we've got? Then the question is, what would we want from that time? Uh, you know, lately for me, I like adopted two abandoned feral chickens, not to put feral on it. Uh, I feed them every day. They're almost full grown. They still like eating in my lap. There's something really incredible about sitting with my kids and feeding chickens. We're not going to eat these chickens. Uh, and like, there was a night we were eating another chicken, and that was super weird. But like, but actually, the, the, no, but this was, no, but this was like this was a super moment for me. Like, I realized like, you know, I like I've been vegan, I've been vegetarian, I've come back again, I've done other things, I'm soy intolerant, all the all the fun of being you know 40 something uh but 
there's something I learned from being with chickens all the time that means like I can never encounter chickens the same way again. They're social when they're wild. They collectively take care of their young. Uh, they recognize you. Those baby chicks make a different noise when they see me because I've been raising them since their mom was killed by a mongoose and they were that big. And that has totally rocked my world. And what, so what I mean by like feral is like leaving yourself open to experiencing the world differently, even if you don't know where it's going. And I know that sounds super vague, but I actually think there are tons of moments for doing that. Um, when I was in grad school, the way that I did it was really unsettling, and I'm still glad I did it, and it's hard to keep doing. But I made a decision when I was living on the, the south side of Chicago that I was going to make eye contact with every houseless person on the way to school. It was about a mile and a half walk. Um, I got to know a lot of people uh, who broke my heart. You know, like I helped when I could. I got to know folks. But like I realized more importantly, like how much I worked to dehumanize people on a daily basis to make my life easier. Uh, it made my life a whole lot harder. I had to draw some boundaries. I don't really like those boundaries, but I think about those boundaries when I draw them now. Uh, and I guess I think that, that like, it's, it's an ethos that I sort of borrowed from, you know, old philosophers like William James, but also artists who think that, like, you can't think in advance of what you want. You have to put yourself in the middle of things and experiment and see what it does to you and then think your way out. Uh, and the reality is, like, those experiments are not going to lead to a zero carbon emission car, but they probably could lead to a better life. Uh, and, you know, there's this woman named Bonnie Honig. She's, like, riffing on this other guy whose name I can't remember. But there's, like, there's a huge difference between more life and mere life. And more life is not actually more of the mere life. It's, like, more life, right? Like, it's an intensification of life. And it's really hard to articulate that as a value anymore, right? Like, well, can you monetize it? Can I buy it with Bitcoin? Uh, will it get me into college? Can I put it in my essay? Like, you know, like, like, it's like, it's like, there's so little space for values that are useless in some sense. And, and that, I guess, that's the operational space that yeah. we're sort of already. Yeah, we're, it's all operationalization all the time. And I guess I think that's like, that's a fate worse than death. So the survivors will envy the dead. Did you still have a question? Yeah. Um, and then there's are. one person back there that had a hand. What got you to be an academic? And then the second part was about, so there's a story, I call it brainwashing, about the utopia. But it's not like the... About what? I'm sorry. Utopia. utopia. And then there's going to be like a minimum amount of money for those who don't make any money. Of course, no one's going to be able to live on that because once it is of that. So uh, tell a little bit about that, too. It's a good question. Uh, yeah, so how why did I, an academic. yeah, why did I become an academic? And then also utopia is brainwashing. Yeah. And the what what are they called? The minimum UBI daily weight, UBI universal, universal basic, basic income, income right. guarantee. Anybody know the first uh US president to suggest the UBI? Nixon. Yeah, I should tell you something. Uh so the why did I become an academic? Uh that's a good question. I really love to teach. Um I started out as a high school and college debate coach. I loved thinking through ideas with people. I loved just like talking all the time uh, with people. Like, uh, and, you know, like no one in my family was an academic, uh, but 
somebody somewhere at some point in time, I thought I was going to like go work for the State Department, or you know, I, I know all kinds of things about nuclear weapons. Like it's it's wrong, uh, but you know, like, and they were like, you know, you don't have to do that. You don't have to become a lawyer, and you don't have to work at the Center for International and Strategic Studies. You could just think for the rest of your life, and we'll pay you to do it. And and I thought like I had like opened up that chocolate bar in Willy Wonka and like found a golden ticket. Um, and you know, like it's actually a few people here I used to teach uh, before I became an academic. And there were other versions of teaching that I loved that were inspiring, but they were also like killing me. Uh, like I literally was dying. Like I was, it was ruining my health. I was working all the time. It was around the clock. It was important work, and now someone younger is doing it. And, like, it's, like, service. Like, you just, like – I mean, I, it really was. It was literally physically killing me. Um, and, you know, there's this, like, little special moment in the university where, like, we can do whatever we want with it. Um, Fred Moten calls it the undercommons. You know, like, the reality is, like I, – I know this is all being recorded, but I have tenure now, so I'll just say it. But, like, they're really bad at monitoring us. They're so much worse at monitoring us than you would get monitored at any other kind of job. And so, like, I teach classes that are for no credit and people don't have to pay for, and I use university spaces all the time to do it. We've had a reading group for six years now that's just, like, filled with people. Some of them aren't even students anymore. You know, like, we're functionally running, like, the security operations and research. No university money is going towards it for, you know, taking that damn mountain back because academics can, like, do that, you know? Like, so I, I just, there's some, you know, the French philosopher Jacques Derrida wrote this book about the right to the university. And people were like, oh, you're so precious. You're an academic. But he was like, right. Like, the university is a kind of institution where no matter how messed up it is, no matter how neoliberal it gets, ideas still matter more there than they will ever matter at a private company, than they will ever matter in a nation state. And that is a little bit of strategic flexibility. It's a little bit of breathing space. Um, Thankfully, it's not a utopia, because I agree, utopias are... You know, it's Greek for no place. They, by definition, don't exist. Um, the vision of utopias, I think, are some of the most dangerous and important visions we can have. Dangerous and important. We have to be, ima- be able to imagine things in radically different ways. But it's amazing how much it also shows about who you are. It's like a Rorschach test. You know, Azik Isimov, right, imagines, like, utopia dystopias and they basically look like the apple research complex you know octavia butler imagines them and their possibilities for intimacy and communication and parasitism too and ethics that mean interspecies communication love productivity like you know like i think utopias are where we find out the best and the worst of ourselves so thankfully they'll never happen um but they should tell us a lot about what people want uh, and if you want $1,000 a month and nothing to do, uh, what you're saying is we want to figure out what to do with all of us when we're not needed anymore. So that utopia is not my favorite. There's somebody in the back. Your yep. vision of the future, how do you conceptualize how wealth and its constituent parts evolve, and does it evolve into something that can't be measured with money? Yes, and yes. Uh, so the chapter, uh, I think, 10 it's these three different images of the future that I try to spin out. One is the eco-modernist vision, which is like Stuart Brand, who's sort of a guru from around these parts too, and the Harvard Geoengineering Club. 
um, and they want an eco-modernist future. Well, we don't really need money because like, we are committed to only producing what we need. Uh, most value gets exchanged through like, creativity and art, but we basically all have to live in lockdown cities with nuclear power plants. We're not allowed to go anywhere natural because that place, those places need to regrow. And we probably need pretty authoritarian governments because that's the only way to manage those kinds of numbers in those cities. I think capital will function very differently in those spaces, in that vision. But I do think it's actually possible. I think people who think that you have to have capital as a form of exchange don't understand the radical idea behind things like Bitcoin. Bitcoin isn't radical because it's a way to encrypt money. It's radical because it's premised on the idea that there's enough computing capacity to negotiate individualized and scalably global contracts in real time. That doesn't have to be capital. That doesn't mean I think Bitcoin's good, by the way. I just It's interesting. Um, it's worth unpacking that for a second for people yeah. who don't follow Bitcoin. Yeah, so, so. like every, every Bitcoin interaction is, is basically an agreement over the value of the exchange. Like imagine if every time you used a dollar bill, you had to negotiate over how much that dollar bill was worth. Like that's awful, but it also could be cool. There's this crazy uh, communist actually at Ohio State who's like, you know, what if that were communism? Uh, and his argument is like, we shouldn't get rid of international trade. We should have communist international trade. And his counterexample blew me away. I was like, oh, are you sure you want that? I'm not a really, uh, I'm not, I'm a terrible Marxist, but because uh, I don't like any of that stuff. But he's like, you know, imagine a world where, where communism happened. There was no international trade because there was an emphasis on self-sufficiency and apartheid was still happening. How are you going to access South Africa? Without the mutual vulnerability and interdependence created by economies, there's no boycott, right? And so weirdly, there's actually a value for exchange systems and connections and trade and encounters, independent of the question of whether or not it's how we generate wealth or how we move value from place to place. Um, you know, I mean, in outer space or like in these like super other kinds of authoritarian spaces, the probability of having enough surplus for there to be usable capital, you probably capital drops out in those cases. Um, you know, I've also tried to imagine what the world looks like where it's mostly about war. Um, in those cases, I think also labor becomes self-same with value, right? And so you also get a sort of collapse to the currency, meaning like your value to fight or your capacity to develop weapons is directly related to your relationship of value. We've had systems like that. I mean, the reality is like Germany did not have a functioning currency system during World War II. Uh, like at all, like not even a little bit. Uh, and it functioned just fine as a war state. Uh, by just fine, I mean it was able to kill millions of people. Uh, and no one was like, you know, you're really running up a debt here. Um, they did, but like it didn't slow down the system, right? So I think we have to be careful both as people critical on the left and critical on the right when we think that the economy is as central as we think it is. Uh, it's amazing how many times in history they've just said, we're going to turn the economy off now and things still worked. Much of World War Two and this, the well, like. Speaking of nine eleven, right? Yeah. Like the the myth that oh my god they knocked down the towers, it's all over. Like we rebuilt it. Things kept running. Yeah. Another question at the back. How do you see how should we organize at this time, like against this destruction of cruelty, like yeah. both in the very short term for those that are really being impacted by it, and yeah. more long term. Yeah, I, I walked home from Market Street to Geary Street on Jones Street today. San Francisco, you're not all right. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, you know, like there are moments where I'm like, maybe I was too dark in this book. And then I walked down that street. I watched two police raids happen 
the amount of violence and misery in those six blocks is like that could be a future, right? Like there's we don't do something that becomes a future. I think the answer is, you know, at the end of the book, I say speciate and differentiate. We cannot have singular strategies anymore. I think we need to we need people working overtime, like at places at the Citizens Lab in Toronto that are learning to make us invisible when we want to struggle against states. I think we need people figuring out how to grow food uh, and become independent uh, of economies for when economies are leveraged against us as forms of violence. I think we have to learn how to like care for each other the way that queer activists struggled during the worst of the AIDS crisis and took care of one another when the medical system wouldn't. I think we need to find inspiration in the places where people figured out how to struggle and struggle together and make lives out of the struggle. Because if the struggle is about winning, I don't like our odds because there's no such thing as winning. The sun will eventually burn out. Um, if the struggle is about leading more powerful, meaningful lives that they can't take from us and that they being whoever wants to, um, then I think it's, it's, uh, it's about becoming independent. And by that, I mean having fewer dependencies. I think it's about learning to become selectively invisible. I think it's about building alliances across groups that make us uncomfortable. Um, I'm a science guy. I love telescopes. I'm fighting against a telescope right now because I know it's more important that people be able to live with dignity and have self-determination than whether or not I can find another exoplanet. Right? So, like, but that's, the, the, I think that's where the hard work is, right? Is it, this, you know, uh, James is still in the room. Every time I, like, say something, he's like, but it's a permanent revolution, right? Uh, but I, I think that's actually true, right? Like, we have to get to a place where the fight is the point. It's not the means. Um, it's the second that the fight becomes a means where things get real nasty. Um, when it can never be a means because it's actually a life worth living and maybe a life worth dying for and a life worth caring until we die, then I think it's like really hard to lose. Except for the brain thing. That's sort of bad. But, you know, that's why relations are so important. You know, homeless people disappear every single day. And the reason that that violence happens, there's a huge uptick in murders in San Francisco. They never, no one knew they were there. Um, right? Like that, that kind of violence is like, that's what makes violence easy. So I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's the best answer I got. Do you say anything in your book about invisible or selective invisibility? A little bit. Um, I'm in a real dilemma recently. Uh, and I, a lot of my students are members of movements that fill me with inspiration. Uh, and I will never write about them. Because I think the academy is in a place where, particularly in political science, but also anthropologists, even comparative literature people, we are enamored with struggle and resistance, and that's important. But writing about it gives away the blueprints. Um, and I think that this is the problem with selective in invisibility. We have to have hand-printed journals, and we have to have things that we only share with friends one-to-one. -one. We need typewriters for some of this stuff because the reality is, like, it just, you know, every time you think you're writing for the insurgency, you find out that you're the counterinsurgency. Um, and I think that that's a really hard moment. Right, it's just like surveillance is ubiquitous. Right, it's just it's constant, and it's easy. The thing is, it's just like it's so cheap and so easy. Um, and and 
I talk about it in broad strokes, but I try to avoid talking about it too specifically, precisely because I think I don't want to do the work for the wrong people, if that makes sense. Because um, that was a complaint. A lot of people complain. They're like, where are the voices of the oppressed people you're talking about? Why aren't you talking more about their struggles? And like, I get that as like an ethical move. But like, I would rather be criticized as being the person who didn't put their voices into my book than being criticized as the person who created a playbook for what to do about them. So. But isn't that just another argument? For, isn't that just reinforcing that distance that you described? No, because I'm hanging out with them all night. <laughs> you know, like I'm going to do the work. I'm just, I'm not going to write it down. Um, I'm, I'm sure, like, you know, the tell all book on how they did what they did would be great, but I'm not going to do that. No, no, I know, but I just mean like I, I, it's not distance for me. It just means it's like it's in my head and it's in relations. And you know, I, one of the things like in the book, I did a bunch of reading on neurolinguistics and what's happening to languages when they die. Like because the whole worlds disappear with them, right? They're, it's not language isn't code. You don't just like decode a language, right? It's a, it's a way of living. And you know, the reality is that like world traditions are much more resilient, have much longer archiving capability than any digital system we've ever devised. Um, and we should get really good at telling each other stories again. There are lots of other people who are really good at it. And if they've got extra time and they don't mind us being a pain in the ass and asking them how to do it, like that's what we should be learning how to do. Right. For me, that's like high tech. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, you Thanks, guys. David. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.